we're starting today a new series called On Target. We're going to take a look over the next few weeks at being on target with regard to our mission and our vision and how we can make a difference in this community and around the world. And uh, some of you will be studying the book when uh, helping hurts. And uh, we just hope that together all of that will... will uh, pave the way for us to do something this year that, that maybe we haven't tried uh, in the past. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, are familiar words if you've seen any of the Mission Impossible movies or if you remember the TV series that started it all off back in the 1960s and early 70s. And of course, once the mission was laid out, the tape, what? self-destructed in just a matter of seconds. It went up in a plume of smoke. When you hear the word mission, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? When you hear the word, your mission, should you choose to accept it, how, how does your mind wrap itself around that thought? If you hear somebody say, I'm on a mission today to clean the basement, you can pretty much conclude they have one singular goal in mind to accomplish and that they are pretty well determined to make that happen because that's what mission does for us. Some missions are short-term, others are long-term, uh, others are lifelong. As Christians here at Sherwood Oaks, we have a lifelong mission. In fact, every church should be sharing the same mission because it was given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. The mission of the church is to make disciples, fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, and we're to do that throughout the world. Now, you should know this passage. You should know where this passage is found. It's in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. It's called the Great Commission. You know it well. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. There's the mission baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And did you notice that when Jesus spelled that out, he gave some strategies along the way? He says, as you're going, make disciples. And, and, and as you're going here making disciples, be sure that those who want to become my followers, you baptize them. And once they have become baptized followers, then you keep teaching them so they will grow. Those are strategies on accomplishing the mission. And then Jesus adds a promise. He said, and I'm going to be with you. You're not going to do this alone. I will be with you for the rest of time to the very end of the age. It is not mission impossible, but it is mission challenging. You say, well, how do we do it? Well, that's where the concept of vision enters the picture. Vision is specific to us, and it relates to how we strive to accomplish the universal mission. You say, well, what is vision? It is being able to see where we are headed. And vision is unique to Sherwood Oaks. Our vision may be different than churches around the area. Our vision is our vision, you see. Uh, what we believe that God has given to us to accomplish in carrying out his mission. John Maxwell writes, he said, vision is the gateway to one's destiny. It is the roadmap to one's destination, the picture of your purpose. Without vision, you will find yourself going nowhere. And while our mission never changes, the vision tweaks and changes and shifts as necessary for us to do the best job we can in carrying out the mission that Jesus gave us. Now, at one point many years ago, we had a really wordy vision statement. As a matter of fact, we, you know, you'd ask people, do you know what our vision is? Well, kind of, but I, I, I can't quote it. I, it's written somewhere. Well, what good is a vision statement if nobody can quote it or remember it or understand it? 
And so our leadership about 10 years ago set about to try and make it easy to remember. And it's gone through two or three different iterations. It started with I2U, which is a great concept of us taking uh, the, 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 the gospel into two areas to, uh, you know, taking our love to God and our service to God, taking our love and our service to other people. And we understood that inside these walls. And we decided, you know, we need something that outside these walls maybe makes a little bit more clear sense. And so it tweaked to yes to love, same statement, only in different words. And so when you see that on our website, you see it on our stationery, and you see it on our printed literature, and you see it on the side of the bus as it goes through town, it's easier to understand. We are saying yes to love, yes to loving God, and yes to loving others. The vision didn't change. It's just through the years we're trying to make it even more powerful in our lives. And so when you see a yes to love video, you are reminded that is our vision. Over these next few weeks, we are going to explore what all this means and how it affects us as we reach out into our community to love God and to love others. Because we're constantly looking for ways to strategically accomplish what God has put us here to do. And for those of you, by the way, who are already studying the book, When Helping Hurts, just know that the messages and the study will complement each other. They will not parallel each other. So if you're expecting to read a chapter and me preach on it on Sunday, that's probably not going to happen because that's not the point. The point is to come at it from all different angles so we get a best possible picture at the end of our study. It's at this point that we, I believe, our church is entering a, a, a new phase of life. Now, we've, we've passed through several phases uh, of life in our journey in this world. Uh, leaving home begins a new phase. Getting married begins a new phase. Starting a family, new phase. Empty nest, new phase. Grandparenting, new phase. Retirement, new phase. And you adjust to each one of those phases as they come along. <laughs> one older gentleman described his new phase of life in these terms. He said, I've I've had two bypass surgeries, a hip replacement, two knees, fought prostate cancer and diabetes. I'm half blind, can't hear anything quieter than a jet engine, take 40 different medications that make me dizzy, winded, and subject to blackouts. I have bouts with dementia, poor circulation, and can hardly feel my hands and feet anymore. Can't remember if I'm 85 or 92. I've lost all my friends, but thank God I still have my driver's license. <laughs> We go through different phases in life, each one with its, its own challenges and each with its own joys. And congregations are no different. We go through phases of life too. We've been through several phases here at Sherwood Oaks. We've been through growing phases, relocating phases, building phases, building burning phases, a homeless phase where we worshiped in the high school uh, auditorium, and now we're in a debt-free phase. And except for the burning phase, I think all of them were part of God's plan to get us to where we need to be. And can I say this? That through the fire, God taught us things that we could never learn any other way. So it wasn't a wasted phase either. Today, I believe we stand on the verge of a new phase. I, I believe God has some great phases ahead for this congregation. And as we look to those phases, I want us to review the first part of the vision statement, yes to love. I want us to reflect on what it means to say yes to loving God. To buy into this part of vision, which is essential to everything else that we want to do, uh, I think we have to ask two questions. And if we don't get this part right, none of the rest of the series matters. You got to know that. If we, if we can't start with why loving God and the importance of that, then nothing else matters. 
series. We might as well do something else for a series or really, honestly, close the doors and just leave. Because this, this is the foundation upon which the rest of this series is all built. And so, and so the first, two, or the first of the two questions I think we need to answer is simply this. Why is loving God so important? Why, why is loving God really important? Why does it matter? Why is God worth loving? Jesus said, love the Lord your God. As a matter of fact, we're going to read that passage. In Mark chapter 12, the first passage we read is the, is the great commission. This passage is the great commandment. You need to know both of these because they are central to who we are. Mark 12, verse 28, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher. The man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and that there is no other but him. To love him with all of your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Why is God worth loving? Okay, bottom line, if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, if I'm a Christian, if I am a disciple, a fully devoted follower, and the one that I follow, the one who is my Lord and Savior, tells me that loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength is the most important thing I can do. That, that really ought to settle the issue. I mean, I really shouldn't have to know more of the details. But I'm a human being. And human beings just aren't wired that way. We, we need a little bit more proof, or we need incentive, or we need inspiration before we simply follow such a command. I want to know, is God worthy of my love? Now, before I go any farther... Okay, I, I, I want to acknowledge the fact that most of the men in this room, myself included, are already uncomfortable with this whole concept of loving God language. For men, at least in our American culture, this, this whole business of, of, of loving God feels too romantic, it feels too syrupy, it feels too wimpy. It, it just doesn't feel manly. And that's because I, partly we've overused the word love and we've often misused the word love. It, for, for us, it means everything from loving avocados to Zamboni machines. You know, we, we just love everything. And so that's what complicates the picture. And, and then because we think of loving family, spouse and children and grandchildren, and you get that warm and fuzzy feeling and suddenly think, I, I got to have this warm and fuzzy feeling for God, but I don't see God's love for me being warm and fuzzy. I'm not sure I get the but it feels strange. So for us men, especially, let's remember that the love of God and the love for God is not a feeling. It's a bit confusing, I understand. When it comes to loving God, we, we create these images in our mind. Oh, God is this great-great-grandfather image with a long flowing beard and maybe just a touch of dementia, but I love him. Get rid of these pictures. Get rid of those images. Those don't help at all because there's a, you know, dozens of images that we create of God. 
God's love for us is based on what is best for us. When Jesus says that the greatest thing we can do is to love God, he's referring to a decision of the mind and a decision of the will, not a feeling of the heart. Loving God, then, is more like this. Loving God is reverence, respect, and loyalty for who he is and for what he has done. Now, if I said to you this morning that the men of the Continental Army at the beginning of our nation's history loved George Washington, that would be a true statement. But you would not interpret that to mean that they had a warm and fuzzy feeling about their commander-in-chief. You would understand, based on his leadership, that the men of the Continental Army had a deep respect, a high regard, a, a loyalty to the leadership of George Washington, so much so that they would follow him anywhere. And so you would say, they loved their commander-in-chief. Did they have feelings for him? Yes, but the feelings came in a different way after they respected, revered, and decided to follow him. When Jesus says that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, I believe he is talking about that we look to God for who he is and what he has done with a sense of deep reverence, high regard, genuine respect, and an attitude that says, I will follow my God to the ends of the earth. Why would I want to respect and be loyal to God? Why should I feel that way about God? I I get why the Continental Army felt that way about George Washington. I saw what he did. Well, why don't you take a look at what God does? Look around you at the creative power that that God has set before us as an example of who he is. I, I wish we had a whole series to explore why loving God is important and who he is and everything. But you know the things that he's done. But, but just remember a couple of things about his greatness and his power that just inspires me to no end. Uh, uh, just, just a few days ago, I was out <clears throat> in, in, in the afternoon taking the Christmas lights off our shrubbery and that type of thing. And, and all afternoon, my thoughts as I worked with the lights were interrupted by sedges of cranes flying overhead, honking in Beautiful V formations. I, I couldn't count them all. I, they, they were sandhill cranes. I, sus, I assume they are coming from the Indiana Dunes area, which is where a lot of them spend their summer. They are on their way to the Gulf of Mexico, and, and our house was on their flight pattern. I looked up at one time. One time, there were 10 of these formations. Some had as few as six in the V. There was one that had more than 50 in the V. A little bit later on, there was one that came over very low to the house, uh, their trumpet calling as if praising their creator. There were 30 in a perfect V. I just stood there, breathless, thinking, those birds, those cranes have a small brain. And yet year in and year out, spring and summer, Fall and winter, they make this journey from the northern part of Indiana and Michigan and that area all the way to the Gulf of Mexico and back. In beauty and grace that sends up praise to the Creator. I know science has tried to discover how this migration thing works. They think it has something to do with the magnetic poles of the earth. But I know that it is the Creator that has put into their mind an instinctive ability to do so. 
Each year from November to February, approximately 4,500 Hawaiian humpback whales will migrate some 3,000 miles from Alaska to breed, give birth, and bask in the warmer waters of Hawaii, the most remote island chain in the world. They have no GPS. They have no motorized transportation. It's just their instinctive knowledge and the grace of their huge, massive size and power that gets them that 3,000 miles from the coast of Alaska. Alaska to the islands of Hawaii. Beautiful. Now, I'm, I'm supposed to be, you are too. We're supposed to be a part of the more intelligent species. But you put me in a rowboat on the coast of Alaska without a GPS, without a compass, without a sextant, without a map, and say, go to Hawaii. You'll never see me again. We'd never see you again if you tried that. We, we are incapable of that. And yet, and yet, God says you are the crown of my creation and I love you so much. Not a gushy kind of love, but I want my creation to spend eternity with me so much so that I will give the life of my son to pay for the price of your sin that we might be together forever. The God that causes the sandhill cranes to fly overhead and the whales to swim in the depths of the sea back and forth is the God that will lead you home. How can you not revere him, respect him, be loyal to him, follow him to the ends of the earth and love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? The second question is simply this. How do I know that I'm loving God? Once we become convinced that God is worthy of our love, then, then how, do, how do we know that we're actually loving God? This is my favorite tape measure that I, that I own. Um, it's not my best tape measure. It's not my easiest to read, uh, but it is my favorite, and I'll tell you why. Uh, Forty years ago, when I worked between college semesters in a furniture factory in Ferdinand, Indiana, this was given to me by one of the older men in the plant, a man by the name of, of, of Ralph Lemon, who came alongside of me as a college student working one summer in this furniture factory to help me make the most of that time and, and to encourage me during that time. Every time. I, it was worn like this when I got it. I don't know how old the tape measure is. But every time I use it, it reminds me of the measure of Ralph's kindness to me that got me through a rather tough summer. How do we measure loving God? It's one thing for me to begin to understand that I ought to love God and that he is worthy of my love, but how do I know that I'm loving him in the right way? I mean, that's not so hard when it comes to family. When my grandkids come running and throw their arms around my neck and hug me unconditionally, and when I look deep in their eyes and I know that I would do anything in this world for them if it was for in their best interest, I have a measure of the kind of love that is necessary. But to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's so easy to say, but so very hard to determine. I mean, I don't want to get home one of these days and God says, you didn't love me. And I have to say, I wanted to, I tried, I, I didn't know how to measure the love to know if I was genuinely loving you. How do you answer that? How do I measure my love for God. Well, there are a lot of ways, but let me give you three that'll help at least get started this morning. The first one is communicate with God. 
I've lived long enough to realize that communication is essential to the longevity of any relationship or any organization. No personal bond can survive without it. This morning, the bulletin is different. We are trying a slightly different shape and format to it. Now, you may like it. You may not like it. That's okay. We're trying it. We may, we may decide it doesn't work very well this way. But I'll guarantee you one thing. You all looked at it closer than you looked at last week's bulletin. You all went through every word in there and looked it all over. You saw what was in the bulletin more this week than you've seen what's been in the bulletin for the last several weeks because it changed. Communication has to be fresh and vibrant to capture our attention. That's, that's one of the reasons we have a live stream of our services this morning. We want people to be able to get this message in as many possible ways as we can. It's why we're always tweaking the, the website uh, and trying to improve it and make it better so we communicate better because communication at every level matters. Now, how can we expect to love God if we never communicate with him or allow him to communicate with us? Jeff mentioned in his communion meditation a few minutes ago the gift of prayer. Prayer is our communication with God. His word to us is his communication with us. If you never pray or you never read, how, how can you say, I love God? I'd have a real hard time convincing Elsie that I loved her if I never talked to her and I never listened when she talked. So here's, here's what I'd like to suggest to you, starting this week. If you pray every day and if you read the Bible every day, do this. Read five minutes longer every day. Pray three minutes longer. Those aren't big numbers. If, if, we, if I gave you big numbers, it wouldn't happen because we do better with smaller incremental goals. But try to increase your time communicating with him and letting God to communicate with you. And if you don't read the Bible every day or pray every day, then, then I'm going to suggest you start by doing that every day, little by little along the way. So instead of praying three or four days a week, pray seven days a week. Read the Bible just a few minutes, seven days a week. And, and you will be able to start to see that this is a tool you can use to measure, I'm loving God. I'm beginning to see that he is the priority of my life. So communicate with him. Now, how can we expect to love God if we never allow him to communicate with us? Gary Thomas wrote, he said, anybody can date God. The truly mature seek to be his faithful, lifelong companions. So I guess I'd ask the question, how is your communication with God? It's a way to measure your love for him. Um, I think it would be really good if we could find ways to do that even better. Okay, here's the second thing, C connect with God. And you say, well, isn't that the same thing, connecting with God uh, and communicating with God? No, it's not the same thing. You can communicate without Connecting. I mean, you know, we do that sometimes in, in office areas and businesses. You may know coworkers around, then you have to communicate with them, but you don't have a relationship with them. You don't really have a connection with them. And, and it's important that we connect. The Journal of Happiness Studies reveals that the difference between genuinely happy people and unhappy people has nothing to do with money, health, security, IQ, attractiveness, or career success. 
The distinguishing factor is relational connectedness. Being connected to others results in a happy life. John Ortberg writes, connectedness is not the same thing as knowing many people. People may have many contacts in many networks, but they may not have any friends. How important is loving connectedness? Scientist Donald Winnicott found that children who play in close proximity to where their mother is standing are more creative than children who play at a far distance from her. Now, there's something about this circle of connectedness that enables a child to show more energy, laugh more freely, and take more risks. The mother isn't doing anything different. She's just in closer connection with the child. And when the child feels that connection, the child feels loved, protected, and cared for. And then the child feels stronger, bolder, and more creative. Just by being in the proximity. Connected that way. You say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but how do I connect with God? Well, it's pretty simple. He gave us his family to be our connecting point. How can we claim to love God and not love his family in this world? How do we claim to be connected to God and not be connected with his bride in this world? You can see the power of connectedness sometimes in the most unlikeliest, unlikely of places. Uh, Take, for instance, the life of Sir Winston Churchill. Churchill had a wonderful marriage, was deeply connected to his family, his friends, his nation, and his work. His health habits, however, were abysmal. His diet was awful. He smoked cigars all the time, drank too much, had unusual sleeping habits, and was completely sedentary. Yet he lived to be nearly 90 years old. He was once asked, Mr. Churchill, do you ever exercise? (laughs) To which he said, the only exercise I get is serving as a pallbearer for my friends who died while they were exercising. (laughs) Now, I'm not advocating not taking care of your of your life. I'm not abdicating uh, poor health habits. To the contrary, we should do our best to take care of this temple that God gave us. But what I am suggesting is that you can, you can be the healthiest person, but if you have no connections, your life is going to suffer as a result of that. Robert Putnam made a powerful observation when he noted this. He said, as a rough rule of thumb, if you belong to no groups, but you decide to join one, you cut your risk of dying over the next year in half. That's incredible. I think that's why life groups have such an advantage here. It gives you a place to connect. They matter here at Sherwood Oaks, and you need to be connected to family here, and the best place to start that is with a life group. And in light of this study that says just joining one group cuts the chances and the odds of dying in half, I think a new slogan for 2016 should be, join a life group or die. (laughs) Maybe a little harsh, but you get the point third measure is obedience to God. John 15, 9 through 10 says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. This may be the easiest tool of all. Every parent knows this. Every child knows this, that when a parent 
gives us a rule and we disobey it, it is showing disrespect for their love. And it is making our love for them less important. What is true with our earthly parents is true with our heavenly father. When God gives us his guidelines, his rules, his commandments, and we snub them, we throw up our hands at them, we don't respect them, we don't obey them. It is as if we're saying, God, I don't really love you. You can rationalize all you want. You can say, well, the, the rules don't apply to me. Or you can say, well, they're pretty antiquated, God's commands. They, they really aren't relevant for the 21st century life. None of that's true. They are relevant. God knows what's best. Remember, his love is what is doing what is in our best interest. So when you obey, it is a tool to measure your love. I guess this is the bottom line. If you want to know if you're loving God, measure how you communicate with him and he with you. Measure your connectedness with his family, which connects us with him. Measure your acts of obedience. And if you can smile at the end of each of those measurements, then you can begin to know, yes, I'm loving God. A wealthy businessman, well known for his unethical business practices, told Mark Twain that before he died, he wanted to visit the Holy Land, climb up Mount Sinai, and read the Ten Commandments out loud from the top of the mountain. Mark Twain, knowing his business ethics, said, I've got a better idea. Why don't you just stay in Boston and practice the Ten Commandments? You see, love obeys. Love communicates. Love connects. There are ways to know and to measure your love for God. And so here at the beginning of the year, we need to start figuring out, do I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? It's the greatest commandment. And unless we get that right, nothing else we're going to talk about over the next few weeks is going to matter at all. This is the starting point. This is the capstone and the foundation. It's the beginning and the end. And regardless of how uncomfortable we are with the concept of love, God loved us first. So... Love him deeply with your respect, your honor, and your obedience.